Section 24 of The Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 15, Part 2. The New Constantinople. From the first year of his reign, Michael gave his thoughts to the recapture of Constantinople, and in 1260 he led his troops against the city, but he had not the rams and catapults necessary to shake its stout walls. He retired to the palace at Nymphaeum to arrange for the strengthening of his forces, and one of his generals, hearing that the bulk of the Latin defenders had sailed on an expedition to the Black Sea, and that the greeks in the city were prepared to aid him boldly entered constantinople during the night burned out the venetians from their quarters and when the latin galleys hastily returned laughed at them from the impregnable ramparts their monarch had fled at the first shock and the whole of the latins now in the summer of twelve sixty one returned to the west on the day following the entry of the city, Michael was awakened by his sister Eulogia. The chronicler praises the prudence with which she broke the good news to her brother. One of her servants had heard it in the early morning, and she entered the bedroom of Michael to tell him. She thoughtfully tickled his feet to awaken him in a natural manner, and stood smiling by the bed, until he had full possession of his faculties and she could tell him without risk michael at once moved his forces and his family to the asiatic suburbs in view of constantinople where the crown and the royal boots were brought to him not until a becoming ceremony could be arranged however would michael enter his capital and then only with the most conspicuous piety after spending the night of 14th August in a monastery outside the walls, near the Blachernay Palace, he entered in the dress of a plain citizen, preceded by the picture of the Virgin, which was believed to have come from the brush of St. Luke. The brilliant August sun lit up for them a melancholy spectacle, as the Emperor, John had been left to amuse himself in Asia, and his wife and sisters, rode or drove down the maze to the cathedral the blecharnay palace itself was uninhabitable its mosaic walls were blackened with the smoke of the fires by which latin soldiers had roasted their game and its tessellated floors were in a sordid condition filthy too were the colonnaded streets and squares that had once been the pride of constantinople I will presume that the reader knows something of the indescribable ways of our Latin and Teutonic fathers at that time, and for centuries afterwards. Not a statue or ornament of value remained in the public squares. The vast piles of stone still lay where once had been the graceful mansions of the Byzantine nobility, and great areas of the city were now but scorched skeletons of once gay and populous districts. The Bucoleon Palace alone had been preserved with any care, and to it, cleansed for their reception, the royal party proceeded, after a thanksgiving service in St. Sophia. Before long, 
the court stealthily discussed the fate of the young emperor who had been left at nymphaeum michael was said to have reflected that he had now obtained an empire of his own and that the obligation of his oath did not extend to this new dominion eulogia a fanatically religious woman as we shall see supported her brother indeed it is said that the two nun sisters whom michael consulted daily urged him to depose john and bury him in a monastery sinister rumors circulated in constantinople especially when michael proceeded to marry john's sisters to obscure western nobles who happened to be in the city and gave them money enough to take their brides away to their distant countries but this topic was presently displaced for a time by one of greater interest it was said that michael proposed to divorce the plain and quiet theodora and marry the italian widow of john vatazzi's anna had remained in the east after the death of her husband in twelve fifty four and would be about twenty years old or in the ripest development of her beauty at the time we have reached she came to constantinople with the court and from his slender resources the emperor supplied her with a revenue which enabled her to live and dress luxuriously it was no doubt politic for michael to invite the favor of the italian monarch by this generous treatment of his sister but anna soon learned that the policy was strongly supported by inclination directly or by means of his servants michael made violent love to her and begged a fitting return for his liberality anna refused to be his mistress it is characteristic that the chroniclers do not represent her as spurning his advances on the ground of virtue she was they say too conscious of her superior origin to enter into such a relation with michael and instead of rejecting his gifts and returning to her father's court she let michael know that though she disdained the position of mistress she would not refuse that of wife the kindly and patriotic chronicler would have us believe that this was merely a ruse to protect her dignity and we may or may not believe this the immediate effect was that michael began openly to speak of divorcing theodora she was he gracefully acknowledged a faithful wife and excellent woman but considerations of state made it advisable for him to marry anna there was a fear that the latins would make an effort to retake the city and it was prudent to form an alliance with some of their strongest princes theodora who had given birth to her fourth son since they had reached constantinople vehemently protested against the proposal and enlisted the interest of the patriarch so that michael was forced to send back anna with a splendid escort and equipment to plead his cause in italy michael now returned to the problem of john and when he remarked to his courtiers that it was absurd to have two heads under one hat they knew that the youth was doomed we have no reason to doubt the statement of the chronicler that eulogia supported him in this design but we may at least assume that the manner of executing it was due to michael alone he ordered that the harmless and helpless young man should be blinded 
a long experience had made the greeks ingenious in this operation and instead of removing the eyes with knives or using hot irons they now sometimes blinded a man by an elaborate concentration of intense light on the retina or by the use of boiling vinegar the more humane method of blinding by an intense light was used in the case of john and the unfortunate youth was then incarcerated for life in a fortress on the coast of bithynia this ghastly operation was performed on the day on which the churches and monasteries of the byzantine empire offered their clouds of incense in honor of the birth of christ it is at least gratifying to find that it did not pass without protest a warm-hearted youth attached to the court lost his nose and lips for speaking too freely about it and many others had to be punished theodora seems to have been a silent perhaps disgusted witness of her husband's course and there is some faint evidence that michael's elder sister dissented from it in fact the patriarch arsenius himself openly resented this flagrant violation of a thrice repeated oath and thus led to a long and fierce ecclesiastical struggle in which the two royal nuns were actively engaged the patriarch's procedure was not as emphatic and thorough as it ought to have been but he at least distinguished himself among the crowd of corrupt and servile bishops and abbots by more or less excommunicating michael a council of bishops then obliged the emperor by deposing arsenius and putting a more courtly prelate in his place but the hostility and derision of the people soon induced germanus to retire and a clerical diplomatist named joseph occupied the see as the furious schism of the arsenians and the josephites which followed will cross the lines of our story for some time to come it is necessary to introduce this fragment of ecclesiastical history for the moment it is enough to say that in twelve sixty eight the patriarch joseph absolved from his sin the ostentatiously penitent emperor before a crowd of weeping senators and priests the twenty years that followed the return to constantinople were absorbed in the work of restoring the empire and adjusting the quarrels of the partisans of the rival patriarchs of the restoration it is enough to say that as in all similar efforts during the last three centuries of the empire it consisted in recovering the revenue of the court and enriching the emperor's supporters not in any serious attempt to revive the industries and commerce of the empire nor were michael's attempts to make foreign alliances much more successful foiled in his efforts to secure the interest of latin rulers he turned to the servians and bulgarians in twelve seventy two he decided that his second daughter anna should marry the king of servia theodora had some misgiving that the barbaric servians were unfit to receive her daughter and she directed the ministers who took anna to the frontier to send on in advance a party to explore the servian court and to linger sufficiently on the journey to receive their report it proved a wise precaution 
the servians had gathered round the advance party like as described in the byzantine chronicles a group of savages anna's eunuchs excited their intense curiosity though not their admiration and the superb equipment of the princess was heatedly criticized they brought out anna's prospective mother-in-law a dirty and coarsely dressed woman to show the greeks a model queen they also stole the imperial horses so the advance party hastily sent a report to the ministers who lingered on the way with anna and she was conducted back to her mother in the same year eulogia's daughter maria was married to the king of bulgaria but the marriage brought little profit to the emperor eulogia had now quarrelled with michael she took the part of the ex-patriarch germanus and she and her daughters and her favorite monks threw themselves so ardently into the religious quarrel which the emperor vainly endeavored to settle that michael was very angry with them monks now traveled constantly between the young queen of bulgaria and the empress nun her mother and gravely disturbed michael's work after a time maria sent some of the monks to palestine to induce the sultan to harass her uncle's territory and she even persuaded her husband to declare war on him michael hated the monks as heartily as eulogia loved them and he at length expelled his sister from the capital when he went on to propose a union of the latin and greek churches and induced a synod at constantinople to acknowledge the supremacy of the pope eulogia's love was turned into violent hatred of the emperor martha seems to have died during the struggle and theodora was too weak or too indifferent to clerical matters to take any part in it she must have watched with disdain the last vain efforts of her unscrupulous husband to escape the dangers which threatened him in the early winter of that year twelve eighty two he set out to crush a rebellious noble of the ducas family theodora tried in vain to dissuade him from leading an expedition to thrace in such a bad season and a month later she received the news of his death her son andronicus now took the purple and as andronicus was orthodox and his royal aunt eulogia at once returned to the scene theodora had a more dreary time than ever her brother was damned eulogia insisted and his remains and memory were not to be honored by the pompous ceremonies of the greek church the young monarch he was in his twenty-fifth year bent to her commands and the body of michael was buried almost without a prayer in the military camp where he had died theodora feebly protested and was assured by the fanatical eulogia that her own soul was in danger and her name could not be included in the list of those who were commended to the prayers of the faithful in saint sophia until she had purged herself of her guilt she was compelled to sign a repudiation of the authority of the pope which would cost her little and to promise that she would not ask the prayers of the church for her husband into the appalling struggle of the church factions which followed we need not enter one of the best historians of the time who saw the empire slowly perishing while its whole soul was absorbed in this quarrel 
bitterly observes that quote, for the sake of a single coin both sides were prepared to take oaths so horrible that the pen cannot describe them end quote. one day they appealed to miracle each side wrote out a statement of its case and a vast crowd gathered to see the two rolls of parchment cast into the flames and howl for the intervention of god in favor of the just cause but both documents were burned to ashes and the ferocious struggle continued for decades while the turks spread over the asiatic provinces pirates swarmed in all the seas and the venetians and genoese captured all the trade of the empire eulogia disappears in the midst of this struggle fighting to the last in the cause of the monks a pathetic example of the way in which the age perverted its ablest and most spirited women theodora lived on for twenty-two years and saw two new empresses enter the palace but the chroniclers of the time are too much occupied with the ecclesiastical controversy to tell us much of the personal life of the court george pachemers has left us a large volume on the history of his times but fully one-half of it is taken up with the patriarchal struggle i will therefore be content to tell the later sufferings of theodora and then return to the empresses whom her son andronicus put on the throne the family of the emperor michael had consisted of four sons three daughters and two illegitimate daughters the daughters were bestowed upon various nobles or petty monarchs and of the four sons three survived to intrigue or suspect each other of intriguing for the throne andronicus was the eldest and he succeeded his father without opposition the second son constantine had however been the favorite of his parents he had received great wealth from michael and it was known that michael intended when death closed his career to set up constantine as an independent emperor in greek territory from the first therefore andronicus regarded his younger brother with a jealous eye constantine was a good-looking and very popular youth very liberal with his money and surrounded by friends unfortunately he had like most of the greeks of the time little or no self-control and in twelve ninety one he gave his brother an opportunity to destroy him some short time before twelve ninety one constantine had married the daughter of raoul one of the chief officials of the court she was a beautiful and somewhat vain young woman very conscious of her new dignity on the feast of the apostles one of the many days on which the ladies of constantinople were wont to pay ceremonious visits to the ruling empress constantine's wife we do not know her name repaired in great splendor to the palace of irene in the hall sat an aged and noble dame named strategopulina in other words a lady of the distinguished strategopoulos family and herself a niece of a former emperor she had arrived too early for the reception and sat on a couch without the empress's chamber on account of her age and rank strategopoulina did not rise as she ought to have done when constantine's wife passed and the offended princess returned to her husband in such rage that she fell ill most probably the old lady knew 
that Andronicus and his wife would not be very displeased with her action. But Constantine, egged on by his wife, took the matter in his own hands. Acquainted as we are with the morals of Constantinople, we are hardly surprised to learn that Stratigopulina was believed, in spite of her age, to be intimate with one of her servants. Constantine sent some of his servants to flog this man in public and drag him naked round the forum. The scandal, the storm of chatter, and the gross injury to one of his wife's friends angered Andronicus, and for some time he looked darkly on his brother. Constantine was alarmed and took pains to conciliate him, but he was displaced from his position at court and sent on some mission to Nymphaeum. With his 60,000 gold pieces a year and his pretty wife, Constantine would still find life desirable in Asia Minor. Presently, however, Andronicus came to Nymphaeum and took up his residence in the old palace of the Nicene emperors. To this palace Constantine was summoned one morning in March, 1291. He found it full of soldiers, learned that his brother had found him guilty of treason, and was given into custody. His luxurious belongings and his great income were confiscated by Andronicus, and he was destined to spend the remaining fifteen years of his life in a new and particularly ignominious prison. Andronicus was afraid to lodge him in a fixed jail, lest his supporters should free him and start a revolt, and he therefore had a portable prison, a litter, converted into a strong-barred cage made for him. In this plight, Theodora found her handsome son when, a month or two later, Andronicus brought him to Constantinople. The emperor had now taken a decisive step, and he disregarded his mother's prayers and tears. When she pleaded that her son had been convicted without trial on the secret denunciation of a monk, Andronicus merely summoned a council in the palace and compelled his obsequious courtiers to ratify his sentence. Theodora continued to assail him, but she had never had much influence in the administration, and under Andronicus she was completely powerless. Andronicus gave her no opportunity to thwart his policy by intrigue or violence. When he was compelled to go into the provinces, he took Constantine with him in his portable prison, and the miserable young prince, dressed and shaven as a monk, dragged out year after year without the least prospect of escape. The third and youngest brother, Theodore, took warning by Constantine's fate, put off all signs of royal estate, and living as a private citizen, endeavored to disarm the jealousy of the emperor, these misfortunes, and the thick gathering of clouds about the empire, saddened the last years of Theodora's long life. The regaining of Constantinople had put no new spirit, no healthier blood, into either people or court. The Byzantine power was doomed, and the last sad glances of the aged empress fell on a capital fiercely rent with ecclesiastical quarrels, a shrunken empire trodden under the feet of the Turk, and a sea swept by innumerable pirates. 
she died in 1304, respected and superbly lamented by the citizens of Constantinople. Without strength of character to make her mark on the life of the empire during nearly fifty years of imperial authority, she had at least kept her slender record unstained by crime or vice in a criminal and vicious world. At the most, we can regret only that she clung so faithfully to Michael Paleologus through all the crimes and deceits of his tortuous career. End of section 24. Recording by Linda Johnson.